You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. that music means it's time for the davis garden show this is don shore and this is lois richter on a bright beautiful sunny davis morning but it's supposed to rain this afternoon and don are we going to have rain for the whole week we have increasing clouds and i would say the simple answer to your question is yes we're going to have rain for the whole week <laughs> as as advertised last week the um the big weather ensemble models were showing the possibility of an atmospheric river series of storms hitting california this week and they were not in full agreement on all of that, but boy, they are now. And we are looking at a major storm coming in for Thursday and Friday. The exact timing, exact location has been changing a bit from every time I click on the weather forecast, which being in the nursery business is about every, I don't know, hour or so. A, <laughs> the fire hose of water is being aimed at, looks like about Big Sur region, uh, where they are being urged, residents of that area are being urged to have two weeks worth of supplies on hand just in case because the thing about these storms is there's still some people digging out from the snow up in mendocino coast a week ago so what we have is the day of the broadcast there will be showers mainly after 11 a.m with a high near 50. now this is the last day that the high temperature is going to be that cold up until now all these storms we've been getting have been quite cold this series of atmospheric river or what we used to like to call pineapple express storms are tapping into some warm moist air a little further south in the pacific it's a classic atmospheric river so some of these temperatures are going to jump up rather dramatically high on thursday is going to be 50 with a chance of showers showers and windy thursday night major wind advisory the low on thursday night is only going to be 48 degrees from 50 to 40, it's going from 50 down to 48? Yep, a whopping two-degree drop there at night. Okay, usually around 30-degree difference. What's the what's the next high? Bear in mind that the last series of storms we've had, temperatures you know, at night have been in the low to mid-30s or maybe 40 degrees. We're looking at 48 degrees on Thursday night. Heavy rain, breezy, and then more heavy rain on Friday with a high of 59. So we're up 9, almost 10 degrees. Friday night with a chance of showers, some break in the cloud cover, going to drop only to 44. Saturday, showers likely, looks like a 60% chance in the Davis area with a high of 56 degrees. Saturday night, heavy rain, and the low is only going to be 50, 50 degrees <laughs> Saturday night. Sunday, showers likely on Sunday with a high of 62 degrees. Sunday night, showers likely also only dropping down to 50 degrees. So, so the low... Oh, then is going to be the high for today. Well, the low will be the high that will be higher <laughs> than the highs we were having. Yes, to put it one way. Oh, so my. it looks like, and these showers continue, and the, the weather service and uh, has been a little bit cautious about exactly what's going to happen after this big storm, which could have a couple of inches of rain or more for the Sacramento Valley. Uh, but it looks like Monday showers high near sixty. Monday night showers low around forty-eight. Tuesday showers likely high near sixty. Tuesday night chance of showers breaking the clouds a bit, but mostly cloudy with a low around 43 wednesday chance of showers high near 59 so there are two more storms out there at least that i can see on the radar that i've been looking at 
Uh, they're not as big as this first one. This first one is going to give us the most rainfall. Weather Underground, which is a fun private site that likes to give you very exact numbers, suggests that over the next six days from the date of the broadcast, we'll have about six inches of rain here in this Davis area. And uh, that's just us. There are areas where it'll be heavier. Interestingly, they're talking about small stream flood advisories. This is not a major flood event for the Sacramento Valley. We can absorb that kind of rainfall. It will, however, also be accompanied by very significant increase in the uh, snow level. So the snow levels, which have been very low, I mean like snow on the valley floor kind of low, are going to be up several thousand feet. So some warm rain will be falling on a, a massive amount of snow that's up there in the Sierra. If it hits the snow and uh, and it's still cold up there, it'll just add to the water that's up there. But the intermediate part, there could be some snow melt. Again, they're not real concerned about the first storm in that regard, but there's two more behind it at least, and some indication of a continued wet and rather warm pattern right on in through much of March. I mean, we're looking at a significant period of more rainfall. Bear in mind that in Davis right now, we're at about 22 to 23 inches of rain. That's more than our total seasonal average, generally all the way through the rainfall year. So we're well ahead. The snowpack's at 200% north, central, and south Sierra. I mean, you've got uh, um, plenty of snow up there. So the real question right now is for the people who manage the reservoirs, how much is going to come in? How fast do they let it out? And will, that, will there be further flood concerns down the road? This has some significant impacts for well, everybody, how's that? Uh, but especially, good little microcosm, I heard helicopters Monday night going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth out here out in the country. They were spraying the almond orchards until almost 10 p.m. with fungicides because they're concerned about the fungus impact of this rainstorm, this series of rainstorms with the almonds in full bloom. They've had a tough year already with most of the bloom rained out. The, the key high value variety is it towards the end of its bloom. They've only had one or two days of good pollination weather. They generally have in your average orchard at least two or three varieties for cross pollination and to spread the season out a little bit in terms of, of when they bloom. Uh, so they still have two more, three more varieties that can bloom, but it's looking like rainfall during that bloom period as well. But more to the point, if you know your fungus diseases, very cold temperatures and rain, very little fungus activity. Most fungus have a rather specific narrow range of activity when they infect and cause problems. That's in the 50 degree plus, 55, 60 degree range. That's where we're getting. So wet and warmer is going to be a big problem for not just farmers, home gardeners with peaches that are blooming, plums that are blooming, nectarines, pluots, any of the fruit trees that have blooms open during this period are going to be vulnerable to brown rot of stone fruits, other problems. And if we bump up a little higher after this passes, start getting to the 50 to 55 degree range, fire blight will start hitting the pears and the apples. So a lot more disease problems than we've gotten used to after several years of drought. Bear in mind that our, our winters have been unusually dry when things have been blooming for the last few years. First in, in a number of years that I can remember where we have significant rainfall right on through the whole bloom period. So are we out of the drought yet? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Yes. Well, in I mean, we've, had, we've had so many inches of rain, so yeah. many, much more than usual, but that, is that out of the drought? Well, there's official definitions of drought. The drought monitor site is extremely useful. And they, they did get a lot of publicity last week when 
in one week, we went from 82% of the state being in, in still in severe drought, technically down to less than 50% and changing the severe drought down to a slightly less severe drought category. We have plenty of water. That's not the issue. There's plenty of snowpack. The reservoir conditions are very, very good. Drought also includes groundwater. And the groundwater tables have been, well, the groundwater has been overused during several years of low rainfall and several years of lack of irrigation supply for farmers. That, of course, takes more than one wet season to recharge, but still a significant percentage of the state is considered to be basically out of drought. And uh, with more rain coming and spreading out on the orchard and soaking into the ground could be even better. There's an interesting anomaly right now. Trinity Reservoir, which is a huge reservoir, near Shasta and everywhere up near Klamath Falls and up towards Bend, they haven't been getting these storms. They haven't been mm-hmm. getting snow. So, well, Shasta, you know, well, Oroville is 100% plus of average for the date, as are almost all the other reservoirs. Shasta, before this series of storms, was at about 80% of average. It was still somewhat below average. And Trinity, which is a big reservoir that's up in, in not far from it to the west, was much lower, still substantially lower because just of the pattern of how these storms have hit. Northern California, Bay Area, Central California, Southern California, over and over again. But that strip up there just wasn't getting hit by it. So up, and as, and as I say, Klamath Falls, if you're familiar with that area, they're still stuck in drought. They still don't have the rainfall or the water resources that they need to keep the fisheries going as well as the farm. So it's a tough call up there. But yes, to answer your question, we're not out of drought because of the groundwater issue, but we're way better than we were, to put it mildly. But this does have some impacts, a ripple impact on a lot of, of uh, you know, farms and nurseries and landscapers and people like that. Any outdoor profession has been very impacted by this. If you've been trying to get someone to prune your fruit trees, well, you know what? They're backing up because they can't prune in the rain or they shouldn't prune in the rain because it's just not safe. So they can't get to you right now. They may be a couple of weeks before they can get to you. You've got uh, roofers. Well, they can't do anything. People doing concrete work and asphalt work and outdoor construction projects, and landscape contractors. Nursery industry has been hit hard by this because the wholesalers are just backing up with product and they have some significant, unfortunately, quality issues developing as some of the materials have been sitting out in the nursery fields. Many of them are grown outdoors, getting wet constantly, and now it's warming up. Good example, one of my sales reps, I mean, this is just an example of the kind of thing. Right now, I'd be ordering in four or five different varieties of lavender because we sell lots of lavender in our nursery. It's a great low water plant, full sun, people love it. There were several varieties on his availability list. He finally got to get got to get down to the nursery for the first time in three weeks. They'd had that problem. He hadn't been able to go out and inspect the crops. Walked out there, looked at the rows of lavender, the grosso variety, all beginning to rot out on the inside of the plant because of just constant moisture in the containers there in the fields. So he pulled that one from the availability list and they'll probably have to throw those out, hundreds and hundreds of plants. The other variety nearby was fine. So that's still on the list, but if I have a company that's not got quite such a sharp-eyed sales rep keeping track of these things for us, we may be ordering stuff in and looking at them and going, oh my, this has spots on the leaves. No, we don't want this. We just have to send it back. So there's going to be quality issues. There's going to be availability issues. And a whole lot of them. Jump the gun. These are the smaller grower, the growers that do greenhouse production of, oh, let's say tomatoes and peppers, <laughs> eggplant and impatiens and begonias and fuchsias and geraniums. Those have all been on the list of one of my growers for a month now. And I'm hoping they're not the same we, crop we, still on that on, list. 
Do you mean on the list as in they'll deliver them now or on the available. list you can order them for the future? Available, available, ready to order right now, ready to go. Oh. Meaning you don't want them in the future. They'll be overgrown in the future. So they were ready to send them out. And uh, they had one of my growers had 36 varieties of tomatoes on their most recent. Don, is it time to plant tomatoes now? Not anywhere within their delivery range that I'm aware of, but I will I will say this, you folks listening in the Bay Area, a lot of you guys can kind of jump the gun over there because it's milder conditions typically. So I do know some of the growers that just, you know, put them out to the nurseries in the Bay Area and hopefully those nurseries and particularly the, you know, the hardware chains and such, hopefully they're telling you when you buy them, this is a little early to put them out. Well, over here, we had frost four days ago. It's not just a little early. It would be fatal to the tomato plants to put them out. However, it's warming up nicely, so at least we're out of that issue. Anyway. So when, when should people plan to plant their tomatoes, Don? Oh, I believe that our phrase that we like to use here and over and over at the nursery is, for best results, we plant tomatoes in April, peppers and eggplants in May. And it is now March. March. So we do, like most places, we'll have a few. You know, we'll have a few. We keep them in our greenhouse, which we think is sort of a hint to people that, oh, we'll get that for you. It's in the greenhouse. Like, oh, is it, is it, should it be in a greenhouse? Well, it shouldn't be out in the ground. I'll say that. You bring them into nurseries from nights are in the 30s and they're sitting out there in those little six packs. They just kind of, kind of purplish and they don't look real happy. I do need to mention one other thing, and I hate to say this because it sounds like I'm suggesting quality issues with my growers or any growers, but if you're out shopping early and you happen to want to buy some of those little tomato seedlings, do look closely at the leaves for spots and not not bleaching spots like from when it's come out of a greenhouse and gone out into the sun. That's just kind of a sunburn thing, but distinct spots because the growers have had a huge problem with just lack of solar input. Greenhouses don't work if the sun isn't shining. So, and the sun didn't shine for a couple of weeks there. About seven, actually, that it really wasn't shining much at all. And so they were heating their greenhouses and they were feeding the plants and they're growing. But that unfortunately leads to with the crowding that you get in a greenhouse and even with the good air circulation, which is a key part of managing a greenhouse, even with all that, there's a possibility of bacterial spec, uh, early blight, a couple of those things. All you got to do is just look, lift up the six pack of the single plant, look at the older leaves particularly and see if there are distinct spots on them. If there are politely dropped to the attention of the place you're buying it, put it back or take it up to the counter and suggest that they dispose of it. None of us are going to drench these things with fungicides. Those are the old days. Nobody does that anymore. We just keep them moving put them out in the sun, make sure there's good air circulation. But I have a feeling because of the conditions that we've all had, that the growers especially have had, that there's going to be some overgrown stock and you might want to look closely just so you don't inadvertently take home a plant with early blight or something like that on the leaves. Also, if you like to buy from your neighbors who have little plant sales, there's a lot of these that happen in Davis. It's very cool. I think this is a wonderful idea. I've seen some things on Nextdoor about it. There's a Facebook group in town. Davis is like everywhere else. You've got some people starting seedlings, trading them selling them for a couple bucks a piece you know they're having a plant swap all that kind of thing check the plants carefully don't take it personally if someone says to you that there's a little fungus on these it happens but the best thing to do if it's just a leaf or two pick that leaf off dispose of it make sure that goes into the trash not just onto the ground if there's a bunch of them that have it what i do when that happens if they've come in that way is i carry them right out and i drop them in the dumpster and i tell the grower that we had this problem no i don't demand a credit or anything like that i just say this flat wasn't good. Please check your stock back at your nursery or you who are growing them for your neighbors or friends. Check what you're growing. Watch for, look, look online for bacterial spec, 
early blight. Those are the two that I'm particularly concerned about transferring from the little seedlings to your garden and then possibly being a problem in the future. So if people have been um, growing cuttings or seedlings or whatever, and there is some of that, do they then, should they go and look at the big plant? I mean, are, does the big plant get the same kinds of problems? If you're taking cuttings from something, yes. When we're doing our rose cuttings right now, um, we are, first of all, they're not dormant anymore. They haven't been for five weeks. We're taking cuttings. We're doing them under our mist bench. As they come in, we have a method of processing the cuttings. I'll bring in a dozen uh, cuttings of a particular variety, all carefully labeled, and then we spread them out in the, on a table far from where they're going to be actually propagated, and we strip mm -hmm. all the foliage off. And while we're doing that, I'm showing the staff, this is why we do it. See this one or two little specks of rust fungus on the underside of the leaf. You wouldn't notice that normally unless you were looking for it, one or two. Yeah, a very heavily infected leaf, you would see it. One or two little spots, you probably wouldn't notice that. Put that on your mist bench. Put it in a flat with a bunch of cuttings that also are sitting there under the mist bench. Well, the mist bench keeps water moving constantly, so that's okay mm. because fungus doesn't get a chance to get a foothold, but it's still there. The spores are still there. Then you get it all ready. You take it out of the mist bench and you put it in your greenhouse and you have fungus on everything. So it's we none of us do fungicidal treatments anymore. People don't want that and we don't want to be doing it. So we just monitor and we keep it as clean as we possibly can. And a big part of that is if you're doing cuttings, you're talking about clonal propagation. Yes, check your clonal propagation, propagules as we call them, for the presence of any diseases on the leaf or stem. Isolate those or simply throw them away if you can. I mean, this is, you've generally got enough to work with, but it's not a big issue. If you have one that's badly affected, pitch it. But mostly it's just stripping the foliage off when you're taking cuttings. All the other things I'm talking about, you're growing from seed. So generally the problem isn't with the seed, with one exception. But it's with your with something having gotten in on your soil mix or you're reusing pots, which is never done in commercial operations. You want to keep everything as clean as possible to prevent that from infecting a whole new batch of seedlings. You know, the one exception is rust on snapdragons and hollyhocks. Rust disease is a common fungus on them, and it is seed disseminated. And we it's different rust than the rust on your roses, isn't yes, it? Yes, thank goodness. All the rusts are rather specific. The one on snapdragons is different than the one on hollyhocks. It's different than the one on your roses, and it's different than the one on your lawn. They all have the same life cycle, but they don't cross-infect each other. But if you're growing uh, snapdragons or hollyhocks from seed, as we've done, check the seedlings immediately when they come up because the spores are on the seed. It's really frustrating. If you see it right away, you can pick them off. You'll start to see them on a couple little seedlings. More commonly, and this happened to us with hollyhocks when we tried to grow them for sale, we ended up throwing everything out because we had here and there one or two or three seedlings. I just wasn't going to take the risk. So that's a case where a fungus is actually seed borne, which is weird. But that means, okay, another hint, you're buying hollyhock seedlings at a local garden center. Look on the undersides of the leaves and make sure you're not taking home rust with them. I don't want to make people paranoid, but these are some other things to be aware of. Well, I heard a rumor. You say you don't drench your plants in chemicals, like right? But I heard a rumor. Um, someone wrote in and said that her neighbor just told me that you had recommended a chemical spray mm -hmm. for cherry fruit fly. Please send me this recommendation. I greatly appreciate it. 
the chemical spray though? Well, chemical, uh, I want to emphasize something. Organic or non-organic, it's still a chemical. When you use a pesticide, even if it's certified organic, it's chemical. Uh, and I, you know, I think what perhaps she was wondering was whether I was recommending a synthetic or non-organic spray. First of all, the spray that is used for spotted wing drosophila, sometimes called cherry vinegar fly, the, the, the fruit fly that oviposits on your nice ripening cherry so that you bite in and you find eight wriggling <laughs> little larvae inside the cherry. Oh, we should have a webcam for when I say oh, this. No, no. <laughs> you, anyway. you don't need to see me grimace that much. <laughs> it, it, it's gross. I, I would agree with that. Um, the spray that is being used for that is spinosad, which is organic. It's an organic spray that's relatively low toxicity to people, relatively. It is a broad spectrum, non-selective insecticide, even though it's organic, it's, it'll kill almost anything you spray it on. That's why it's become popular in organic production. It's very useful because it has a wide range of applicability, but that means it's also killing beneficial insects. It's killing uh, some of the things that might come in and feed, not on the spotted wing drosophila. It'd be great if there was something doing that, but there isn't. But some, but the other beneficials in your, in your orchard, which would include lacewings and ladybugs and things like that. Spinosad is not good for them. So that is the spray that's being used. But I didn't recommended, I discussed it and there's a difference. I discussed it and not recommending it per se because it doesn't really work that well for home gardeners, quite honestly. You generally don't have the spray equipment to get a good thorough coverage on your tree. If you ever watch orchard operations, well, they mentioned at the start of the show, right now they're using helicopters, which gives really good coverage. But uh, generally speaking, what they do is they go through the orchards with these big spray rigs that blow out this massive amount of what looks like fog basically and envelops the trees completely great coverage of everything the spray operator is in a enclosed uh, compartment on the spray rig and uh, they go they get very good coverage nevertheless they still have to do two to four applications of spinosad or any synthetic pesticide they're using as the fruit is ripening. So two to four applications minimum over about a three week period as the cherry is going from straw colored to ripe. I don't know any home gardeners that are willing to do that. I don't think that you'll get good results anyway. It doesn't give significant reduction when you, unless you have really, really good coverage. And I don't see how you're likely to get that. So as of now, we still do not have a spray that's effective for home gardeners or really all that effective honestly for commercial applications and frankly uh, that reduces significantly the number of worms that are in the fruit and so i'm not recommending sweet or pie cherries still do not sell them because i know that people are going to get this problem and one of the reasons that i don't like to recommend them is that when people stop spraying and give up, I mean, they're a beautiful tree. Cherries are lovely trees and songbirds like the fruit and you can have, they think about that. Okay, well, the birds will come in and enjoy all the fruit. Spotted wing drosophila has a host range. It includes almost every soft fruit you can think of. In places where it's milder weather, it actually gets into peaches, nectarines, plums, apricots, you name it. It gets into all, even persimmons. So any soft fruit it will go into. In our region, we're very lucky. It only can reproduce up to about 80 degrees, I think is the, the point at which the males start to become sterile. So the population crashes. When we get into our normal late May, early June temperature here, the population crashes and that's that. So we're only concerned about things that ripen before the end of May, which unfortunately includes the whole crop of early burlap and other varieties of cherries grown in the Stockton region for that early market. Now, you say that it's oviposited on the ripening fruit. Right. Is, is it 
when the fruit is red ripe or is it when the fruit where in that process is the fruit susceptible to this well this is what makes it a little different than other fruit flies if you leave fruit rotting out on your counter you get fruit flies in it because it's rotting they go into spoiling fruit this one goes into fruit that is soft enough for them to oviposit so ripe but not fully ripe so you can pick early if you are if you have a good eye for this if you have a cherry tree and you don't want to give up on cherries completely you can go out there and you can pick the fruit when it's red but not beginning to soften look at them look closely at them you can put traps out by the way there's a bunch of ways to trap for spotted wing drosophila to monitor for it and i have actually if you go to redwoodbarn.com i wrote one of the first articles on this topic way back when so it gets tons of hits still and i was allowed to use a picture of the kind of traps they were using for monitoring so you can go there redwoodbarn.com just type in drosophila into the little search box up there and up will come this article it'll show you how to con how to construct a trap for fruit flies well, that's cool. You'll catch a gazillion fruit flies. Now all you need to do is sort through them and find out whether any of them are spotted wing drosophila. The name tells you what you're looking for. You'll catch a lot of fruit flies with these vinegar type traps that they use. That tells you that they're present and uh, you would time your spraying for that. But as a home gardener, you can just start monitoring. And if you pick a cherry and it's perfect, it doesn't have any fruit fly eggs or larvae in it because when they oviposit, it does lead leave, excuse me, a little dimple on the fruit. So once you know what that little dimple looks like, you can start picking, okay, throw that one out, throw that one out, this one goes in the bag. You can do that. It becomes more of a problem the further along in the ripening process they get. So by the time they're fully ripe on the tree and as sweet as you would want them to be, they're about 100% infested. But you can, you can harvest some fruit. Two questions. One is, are cherries climacteric? And for those listeners who haven't heard about climacteric, um, that means that the fruit will continue to ripen after it's off the tree. Is that true of cherries or not? Yes, yes. So you, they have to have some red to them. You can't pick them when they're still white you know, or pale, pale, pale. But you can pick them red and firm and bring them into the house and let them sit on your counter or put them in a bowl of water. And if any of them were infested, have larvae in them, they'll actually float to the surface. A small number would tell you, okay, that you're a little further along than you thought. But yes, they continue to ripen off the tree. So you can pick them a little early. That's the first thing. Second thing, <clears throat> um, you know, I know about apples and coddling moth and some people put little, little baggies over an <laughs> apple so with eight yeah. grams. These things don't attack the fruit until the fruit is almost ripe, which means it, it's not expanding. It doesn't need bees. It doesn't need right. pollination. Why couldn't I simply wrap an entire branch in a big bag, maybe using one of those mesh gauze things? You well, know, I, thought those we were, I thought we were going to make a fortune by coming up with little individual cherry baggies. <laughs> oh, but cherries aren't individual. They're in clusters. The, but what you're suggesting does work, actually. I mean, with apples, yes, you can actually go out and put a bag over an individual apple before the worms get in, and that apple will not have worms in it. That works, and it actually is surprisingly successful. Uh, for with cherries, of course, individually, no, they're in, and they're in clusters, so there's a bunch of them in one spot. If you get out there early enough and you start checking and you've, you've got your traps out and or you just make sure none of them have been oviposited yet, you can swaddle that whole branch with 
frost blanket would be the simplest thing to use or seedling blanket, which is like gauze. Yeah, and it's a very fine mesh material. They, they can't get through that. So that's the important characteristic. And you wrap it around and you just attach it with to itself with clothespins. And you can say to those spotted wing Drosophila, look, I'm giving you this whole tree, except this <laughs> branch is mine and you can't have this. And it works. I mean, I know people who do that with an older established tree. If you don't want to give up on your tree, that's fine up to a point where we'll get back to in a moment. Uh, you could do, if the tree was kept really small, I mean, when they first came in, the farm advisor in Sacramento tested this, built built a frame out of PVC around some cherry trees. They were just curious, could they really exclude them? So, you know, this was like a few hundred dollars in materials, this, but it, it proved the point. Built a frame around the cherry tree, covered it completely with frost blanket, attached it very securely. Clothespins worked very well. Those trees were worm-free, all right? The fruit on those trees was worm-free. Now, if your tree is a normal-sized cherry, it's going to look a little funny be- out there with a the whole building around it with a frost blanket on it. Look like a crystal. Cherries get like a two or three story tall. <laughs> they, they can get large, but I've had customers and it's always these engineering type guys. And so it was like, all right, how do you do this? Well, I'll tell you what you would do. You'd find the slowest growing variety out there, like Craig's Crimson. You get it on the slowest growing rootstock, like Colt. So now you're looking for a particular variety on a particular rootstock. You're basically planting the dwarfest cherry you can. You're going to head it out when you first plant it. So it'll be low branching and you can keep that cherry about six feet, right? That's easy. Six feet, seven feet. You could actually, without total lack of reason, build a frame around that and cover it in theory. And I've talked to these guys and I I hope it worked for them. I would like your feedback, gentlemen, if you actually did this and followed through on it. But the simple thing is, all right, you got a cherry out there. You're not ready to take it out. You want to get some of the fruit. In the last years before I took mine out, I just learned how to pick them. I'd go out there and I'd look and I'd pick and I could pick a whole bowl of uninfested cherries progressively more difficulty as the ripening process went along, but I still enjoyed them for a while. But there's one other reason to think about taking out your cherry or just not planting one in the first place. I mentioned they do attack other fruit. They will attack blueberries, for example. Blueberries ripen April and May, some varieties. So they aren't attracted to the blue color as much as they are to red. We know that they are very attracted to red. So, but there's one blueberry called pink lemonade, for example. I don't think I would plant that one. Every blueberry that I know of, and I come from blueberry country, goes through a series of colors. Right. And it starts out green and then it gets lighter. And there is a red stage before it turns blue. Yeah. So, and you know, yeah, and, and, and blackberries, the same thing. There's a red stage in there. And they do go into blackberries. People don't know that, so I don't want to discourage them, but they can infest your blackberries. And it's more likely to happen if you have a cherry nearby creating a large standing nearby population of the spotted wing Drosophila. If you just have blackberries, just have blueberries, I have plenty of blueberries and I've never had these worms in them. And I've had plenty of blackberries and never had the worms in them because I took my cherry trees out. So there is a good reason to consider taking them out. Now, if you're listening in a climate that's milder than ours, you may get infestation on early ripening, plums which can be red maybe peaches you know they are known to go into other fruit but they definitely have a strong preference for red we noticed this immediately when they were all attacking bing cherries and you know the well-known red cherries and royal ann would be basically uninfested right nearby because they have a much stronger preference for the red color so that helps but to get back to the key first question we aren't selling cherry trees we aren't selling even pie cherry trees because they do attack those and the spray that is listed for it is very challenging for homeowners to apply in a reasonable manner and get any kind of efficacy but be aware that this thing can attack other types of fruit as well so that might be your the final straw that causes you to take out that 
Beautiful, unfortunately, that beautiful cherry tree. Now, a lady asked, what about flowering cherries? I sell lots of flowering cherries. Fortunately, they very rarely set significant amounts of fruit and it doesn't turn bright red. So that doesn't seem to be an issue. Your Akabono cherry is not a factor in the presence of spotted wing drosophila in your garden. Ooh. And you, you said about the temperature. Yeah. Uh, do we have any cherry varieties that ripen after it gets over 80 here? I mean, I, I understand that they're going to get it with, with when it just starting to get ripe, but I couldn't, I, would, I don't know of any, that was what I initially thought with pie cherries because pie mm -hmm. cherries tend to ripen later. And I made that comment in one of my first articles about it. And gentleman sent me a note saying, nah, they get in there too. So I don't okay. think there's a cherry variety to look for here, but we, our good news is it's basically, it was red raspberries as they came into California on initially, they moved to cherries here. That's, those are the big crop issues and it doesn't seem to be a problem on the others, but I wouldn't want you to inadvertently create a very large population of them and have it attacking other things like your the wonderful blueberries that you're growing now i had a customer years ago who had a problem in their nectarines and brought it in and we could not figure out what it was i kept saying this looks like coddling moth you don't get coddling <laughs> moth in nectarines that's ridiculous so we sent it over to the state lab because we actually hey that's a coddling moth <laughs> and they came they called back and said this is a coddling moth it's in a nectarine can you find out more information but by the way if you look it up you'll find yeah sometimes coddling moth will attack peaches, nectarines, things like that. Not very commonly, they're an apple and a pear press, but primarily apples. And I talked to the person who had the problem. They looked over the fence, their neighbor, very close, you know, high density neighborhood, had a big old golden delicious apple in the backyard. Golden delicious, if you've ever grown it, is about a 20 by 20 foot tree easily, produces 500 to 1,000 apples every year all of which were wormy, all of which were falling on the ground, creating a very large standing population of coddling moth that was actually seeking out other food sources nearby. So there sometimes is a reason to get rid of a host plant, unless, for example, in that case, I would have offered to give the neighbors some chickens to put under, <laughs> their, coddling, put under their apple tree and take care of the secondary part of the population, which works, by the way, just for the record. <laughs> so this is KDRT. And we've been on this radio station for a long time. But, you know, there's some shows that haven't been here too long. No. There's some, some, some people who have are so young, they haven't been here too long. Tell me about that student-run show we've got now. It's called The News Cycle, and the Davis Senior High School's Blue Devil Hub, which is their newspaper, produces this weekly show for the Davis community. And the show dives into issues relevant to students and residents, which I think is great because the most recent one is about Mishka's Cafe, which is a well-known coffee place downtown. That's relevant to everybody. And in addition to KDRT, you can find the news cycle at bluedevilhub.com. It is broadcast on catered 8 a.m. on Mondays and noon on Tuesdays. A whole bunch of students rotate through on that one. Replays a couple times during the week. Yeah, for the replay times of all the shows here, you can just go to kdrt.org, click on the support button, send us some money, and then click on the schedule guide and look at all the programming. <laughs> okay. Um, that brings me to one of the emails that we got recently. By the way, Don, how does someone send us a message if they want to? davisgardenshow at gmail.com good and we will read it we we don't read that all the time but every week at least we read that emails so this one is from john and rachel it says hello we are starting a small local radio station in washington state on olympic peninsula and we're wondering whether it would be possible to purchase episodes of your radio show for broadcast sure. well well 
we're not a commercial thing, so right. I don't know about selling it. But hey, wouldn't it be cool if other radio stations would play our show? Yeah, if you I'd wish, like that. if you wish to use the show, we have absolutely. I have no problem with that. But I would like you to go ahead and send that question to the management of KDRT info at kdrt.org, and then they can address whether individual shows would be provided or what you might want to do and i can tell you we're a local nonprofit public radio station so we're open to all kinds of possibilities but info at catered.org for more information about that we also normally do a public service announcement right now and i between the time i first looked this up and now there's been a change we were going to talk about the Arboretum UC Davis, UC Davis Arboretum sales homepage of arboretum.ucdavis.edu member plant sale canceled Oh yeah. Well, that's going to was supposed to be this weekend and it's going to be yeah. rained out. Yeah, due to weather concerns, they're saying now April is now member appreciation month and so the plant sales to mark your calendar are going to be on Saturday, April 8th. Will be a split sale. They've changed this too. This will be member appreciation month, but it's open to the public or something. Anyway, you can check it out. Oh, I see. Members first and the public as usual. Then that's Saturday, April 8th. Saturday, April 29th, public plant sale. And then the clearance is on Saturday, May 13th. So first sale, the UC Davis Arboretum, unfortunately canceled because it's going to be a deluge of rainfall on the weekend. So uh, one of the things to know about the Arboretum plant sale is the members only sale. You don't have to live in Davis to become a member. You don't have to be a member when you walk up to the sale. You can join right there. So come on down. The other thing they do that's useful uh, for designers out there, just in, uh, I always like to mention this, shortly before the sale, they do post their inventory. Now, be aware, you can look at the numbers. There may be five of this and 300 of that. So it's mm-hmm. not like a wholesale nursery where they've got good numbers on anything in particular necessarily, but it's also a very useful guide to the things they're propagating and growing. And mm-hmm. I've found, I've referred designers over there to say, they'll be asking me for some obscure cultivar of something. I'll say, well, why don't you check if it's been on their inventory in the past? At least you know you might be able to get it there in the future you can explore their plant inventory photo gallery read the inventory download it mark it up and then take a friend with you and head over there and try to push everyone else out of the way while you grab that one (laughs) aquilegia eximia that you need to finish your landscape plant okay oh we are going to have to do a show talking about how to figure out what plant that you should recommend in what place because that's a that's a that's a toughie and it has to do not only with uh where you live and hence what plants are available but also your microclimate where you're putting those plants in and boy it gets really complicated it's no wonder that these people have to get training when I was a student, we had one class in horticulture, which was called Plant Selection for Environmental Design. And that is what at a retail nursery we do all day. You tell mm-hmm. us your situation and we help you figure out the plant. And that's basically what hort trained students need to know and people who work in nurseries. Plant right. Selection for Environmental Design. We got another great email. Where was that one that you We, we have a whole bunch of emails. I'm going to ask you a really short one. Um, it says, do you advise planting the planting of flavored giant apricot trees in Davis? Uh, it should do fine here. I don't have personal experience with that one. But what I look at with an apricot is, is it listed for our typical chilling hours? Because we get about 800 to 850 chilling hours on average. And that has been quite stable for 30, 40 years. Uh, so you can, if it's anything like 600, 500, 400, you know it'll get what it needs. That's the first question. And does it ripen? 
relatively early because there's a phenomenon on apricots uh, called uh, uh, pit burn, where if we have a heat wave as the fruit is ripening, as it's getting to the soft stage, it is cooked around the pit. It mm. spoils essentially, but it's actually a heat related thing and it looks fine from the outside. So it's really frustrating. I had one variety that did this, Moor Park, which is a July ripening apricot. Uh, and it would be going along great, looking great color. You'd pick them, you'd have a heat wave, you know, around the 4th of July or something, which is really typical here. And you'd cut in, you'd find it browned and, and actually smelling a little bit off on the inside and actually affected the whole flavor profile. So I do not recommend mid or late ripening apricots in the Sacramento Valley at all, period, because of that likelihood of having a heat wave in July, pretty high here. I recall Flavor Giant ripens earlier, late May, June ripening apricots should be fine. And so I would have no problem with Flavor Giant. It meets the, the basic criteria. Personally, um, the one I sell most, and in fact, almost entirely now, is Blenheim, also sold under the name Royal. They are the same thing. I've had old guys argue with me about it. Well, I'm an old guy now, so I'll push right back at them. They're the same <laughs> thing. It's the same variety. Royal was a marketing name for Blenheim in the 1950s. You can look it up. But <laughs> but Blenheim, Blenheim are so bland. I've had friends who've had Blenheim trees. And they give me that fruit and it, yeah, it's, you know, it's sweet. You need it's to, mushy. You need, well, that's the thing. They picked it over ripe. To me, a Blenheim, and I used to think that. I, I'm not a huge apricot fan, but I like a ripe but still slightly tart apricot. And I found that most people do. If I bring them in and put them on the counter, most people like them. Well, they're still a little firm, first of all. Otherwise, they're rather gushy texture. If they've gotten soft, they're all sweet. And this is true of many fruit. They've lost the slight acidity that gives some balance to the flavor. Some people like that. I've learned over the years, some people like only sweet. Some people like firm, crisp texture, and that's more important than how sweet it is we find that there's a perfect point where the blenheim is still not fully gold that you pick it well it's still firm enough that you can carry it and take it to work and give it to your friends and if they let it sit on their counter and bite it into it the next day it'll be absolutely perfect and then you'll understand why blenheim made fortunes for so many farmers in yellow county back in the 1920s and 30s and 40s because it does have a very rich wonderful flavor when you catch it ripe but unlike modern apricots i'm going to sound like an old guy here unlike these new apricots they've been selected for early coloring early yellow color on the peel and there's a reason for that they obviously have to pick an apricot before it's soft you can't possibly send it to a grocery store if you wait until it's fully ripe but at least if it's got good color, you can send it to the grocery store and it'll sell. And well, they're climacteric, they are, you know, in other words, they continue to ripen. They don't continue to ripen as well off the tree as some other types of climacteric fruits, in my opinion. So newer varieties have better marketability, but they don't have the rich flavor that a Blenheim does when you get it just at the right period. So if you're lucky enough to live in this area, monitor the farmer's market, first of all, late May, early June, depending on the year. And uh, find out if those guys have farms out that you can go pick at. You know, some of the you pick operations out by winter still have Blenheim apricots. I think you'd change your tune about how good a fruit it is. Well, I will allow you to convince me because I trust you, Don. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to go and try Blenheim. Blenheim again. Yes, an heirloom variety now. It's been around long enough that we consider it an heirloom variety <laughs> with a great history in Yolo and Solano counties. You know, I will never qualify as one of those old guys, but <laughs> I've been around as long as Don has. Yes. They just get, let's just say they get a little set in their ways. Oh, we all do. Don't yeah. we all? Yes, so I have. I have, I have a, a, go ahead. Next one. Yeah. 
I'm going to read a couple of things. And these are, are, are conversations that came into Don's store. And so these are, these are real conversations. These are weirdness in the garden center. <laughs> and he's, this one says, multiple people this week are coming in looking for bulbs, not spring planted bulbs. They're disappointed and surprised that we don't have bulbs for daffodils and tulips in stock. Daffodils and tulips are blooming now, aren't they? Yes, their daffodils are in full bloom. Some of the early tulips are blooming now. And they typically bloom through the month of March. So, you know, seasoned gardeners know that you plant bulbs in the previous season. You plant them here in the valley. We start planting October for things like daffodils. Tulips and hyacinths, we want the soil to cool down. We plant them November at the earliest, December, early January at the latest, into mid-January. Okay, I've done a lot of them then. And then they bloom a certain number of weeks later, 10, 12 weeks later. So... That's what you're seeing is ones that were planted in the fall or the very, very early winter. And I understand that not everybody knows that. The thing is that we order those in May. I'm, I'm already looking at bulb catalogs because they were, they were out of some things last year. So I'm going to try and get my order in early, try and get it in before May. Then that is booking them ahead for what will be coming into my nursery next October, November. So you don't go out looking for a thing in bloom to plant it in bloom in the case of bulbs. There's lots of other plants where that works fine. Uh, shrubs, perennials, things like that. Buy them in bloom, plant them. But I'll qualify that. As time has gone by and sales of bulbs as bulbs have dropped, I keep planting more and more of them. I choose varieties that I think are good for selling in four inch quart pots and gallon cans. And we have a whole table right now of bulb plants coming into bloom. It's a phenomenal profit margin for me, let me tell you. So you wanna buy your bulbs that way, I'm all for it, but it's not the most efficient or economical way to buy bulbs. Is so we are selling them, we are selling them as the perennials that they are coming into bloom because that's there's a whole sector of the market out there that just that's how they think about them. That's how they plant them. You want to do a bunch of bulbs, start thinking about it in late spring. Uh, retailers can order them for you. We can probably order 50, 100, 500, whatever you want. You can also order them. Almost all the same companies we order from will sell directly to you at a, just a different price point. So you can order them well ahead, then you won't be disappointed. You'll get exactly what you're after. So a couple of years ago, I in the fall, looked around at what bulbs there were. And there were some, but there weren't a lot and there weren't a lot of varieties. And there yeah. weren't there weren't some that I had remembered and wanted to plant, you know, Ixias and Spraxis. And, and so I went online, I found a bulb company and they found had exactly what I wanted. And so I'm blithely ordering up all, you know, a bunch of this and a bunch of that. And, and it turns out it was in Michigan. Mm. Well, they are not going to send me the bulbs in the middle of winter so that I can plant them because I would have gotten them and planted them and put them in my, mm -mm. they're right, not yeah. going to send those until it is no longer freezing where they are or anywhere between there and here. Cause they don't want to have to write off a bunch of stuff that gets frozen. Yep. And so I got these things and I had them in my hand as the things were blooming out in the yard. And it's like, <laughs> it's the wrong time of year, but I've got these naked bulbs. What am I going to do? I got to plant them. Yes. So I planted them and some of them eventually bloomed that year, but really, really, really late. Some of them didn't bloom that year, but by the next spring, most of them were on the cycle and they were, yeah. they were blooming when it was natural for that bulb to bloom. So here's my, my words to anybody. If you get bulbs, even if it's a weird time of the year 
And, or maybe you found those bulbs that you stuck in your refrigerator in the back and then you just, you know, missed them and now it's March and you found them again. Plant them. Yeah. Plant whatever them whatever you do, plant them. It's spring. Plant those bulbs. Get them growing at least and many of them will work fine. You did happen to mention a couple that are different. They're typically spring planted. So there are spring planted bulbs, which are, by the way, much less of a thing for these bulb companies that you'll find online. Ixias, Sparaxis, Freesias are planted both fall and spring. And of course, Gladiolus and things like that are spring planted. But the ones people are thinking about, your classic bulbs, daffodils and tulips, are fall and early winter planted in California. And the bulb industry industry is a fascinating industry. They all route through the Netherlands and oh, out to these companies in Connecticut and Michigan and places like that. Shipping may be constrained. Also, they do run out. I mean, the bulb industry is always juggling supplies and has was hit real hard by COVID. Uh, but they, if there's one, if you're really fixated on a particular variety, you should probably get your order in early. So here's another one. Uh, someone came in and said, my neighbor's tulips are blooming, but mine aren't. Why is that? Yeah, she thought it was a horticultural issue, but there are just early mid-season and late blooming tulips. So her neighbor got an earlier blooming tulip than she did. Most tulips here bloom mid to late March. Uh, we have some in bloom at our garden center now. There were early types, early flowering hybrids. There's some April ones too, aren't there? Yeah, that's late for tulips here. That's normal for tulips in a colder climate. So. Okay. Um, the next one is my peach tree is flowering, but it doesn't have any leaves. Well, yeah. my plum tree just flowered. It still doesn't have any leaves. That's just the way they are. Yeah, that's someone new to gardening. And yes, peaches, plums, apricots, almonds, all those trees flower before they, they leaf out. That's normal. <laughs> that's normal. All right. And here's the last one that I want to do from this little list. The pomegranate we planted in the fall died right away, and it has no leaves, none whatsoever. Yeah, so she thought it was dead. So she planted a deciduous. It's a pomegranate, right? She planted a deciduous plant in the fall. Uh, she did not know it was deciduous, which means that it deciduous. has a normal cycle of senescing and dropping the leaves. And so she planted it and watched it die. That's what it looks like. We do try to mention this to people, although I should probably be more diligent about it. Deciduous plants do plant fine in the fall. They do make root growth as they go in, even apparently as the leaves are falling. And then they just settle in and they wait and they leaf out in the spring. But if you're curious, if you planted something and you can't tell whether it's alive, and some plants, you know, it's a little hard to tell, just scratch a twig, scratch the bark somewhere. If it's green underneath, it's still alive. And as we like to say, where there is protoplasm, there is hope. <laughs> and do not scratch the main stem. You know, you well, don't I want to. I, I know you do that all. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's safer to do it on a twig or a little branch. And you know, if you try a twig and it isn't green and it snaps off, well, maybe that part is is yeah. dead. But come back down a, the plant a little bit and yeah. come in a little further and try it and just try scratching until you get to a green spot and then you know you're okay. In the bare root season, we all sell fruit trees that looks, of course, like they're completely dead, they're dormant. And there's some in our industry that are quite famous for being very late to leaf out, persimmons and figs in particular. You plant them and everything else is leafed out and April's rolling around in May and we get the call and say, well, yes, we'll guarantee it, obviously, but go out there and scratch it. If it's green underneath, it still could leaf out. Here's another question, Don. How do you get rid of a stump? I, I, there's a tree, you cut it down, now there's a stump. What are you going to do? Um, people come in looking for a stump remover, which is something we used to sell back in the old days, and that was potassium nitrate in a granular form, and you would drill a bunch of holes and pack the holes with potassium nitrate, 
pour a film of kerosene on top. Kerosene? Mm-hmm. Ignite that. Good news. It doesn't explode like gasoline does. It just ignites and it burns and it'll ignite the potassium nitrate. I am not recommending this. I'm telling you what we did in the old days. And it would ignite the potassium nitrate, which would then burn slowly because potassium nitrate, although flammable, is not explosively flammable, at least not in those units. And it would burn down as far as you had drilled a hole. And then the, by then the stump is burning, smoldering really is the term I would use and it smolders and smolders and smolders and eventually after about a month of having some smoke coming up from this little fire in your backyard the whole thing collapses in on itself again I am not recommending this (laughs) but it's what we did in the old days and my neighbor did this with a big old walnut stump and it took about a month you can see this little plume of smoke coming up from the backyard try this in Davis (laughs) plume of smoke coming up in the backyard and uh, eventually he said it just all collapsed in on itself he threw dirt in the hole and that was that it was all done but that's not available anymore so yeah now hold on if we go any further on that one i used to fight forest fires and i want to tell you that if you get a stump burning down into the underground parts whatever the largest roots are those are going to burn too which means it goes down it goes out Mm -hmm. we had we had stumps where the fire would cross the fire line by going burning through a root underneath where we had cleared out and pop up you know two months later on the other side so be careful and don't try that yeah don't don't well first of all you can't try that at all you can't buy this product anymore. So what you can buy now is something called Stump Killer or sometimes Stump uh, Destroy, any bunch of different names. That doesn't make the stump break down. It's a product that you take and you've cut down the tree and it's still a fresh cut. And you can see the ring of cambium tissue, the living tissue. All the stuff in the middle is just wood. It's not alive. And you take this product, which contains triclopyr, and you unscrew the cap and most of them have a brush as part of the cap and you can brush it directly on that ring of cambium it's not getting in the soil it's not causing significant environmental harm and it kills the cambium and particularly kills any growth buds that would be on the edge there that might be ready to re-sprout so for elanthus altissima tree of heaven or privets or things like that or or, you know cherries or plums which are notorious for re-sprouting you can make significant progress against that by just treating that ring of tissue on that stump that kills it it doesn't make it break down any faster the very best thing to do with a stump in my opinion is let it decay naturally with all of its roots in the ground it's sequestered a bunch of carbon it's enhancing growth of soil organisms as it decays it makes it's beneficial to the soil entirely yes mushrooms will pop up they're perfectly harmless they're actually part of the process it may take 10 or 20 years to fully break down in that process it's enhancing the soil in its area so if you don't mind looking at it then just do that or have the guy cut it down so that it makes a little i don't know place to set a planter or something or a, a little seat i had an incense cedar taken out and he decided to cut it so that you could actually sit right there on the remainder of the stump if you happen to want to do that that's the best to do if you have to plant in the same spot or you just can't stand the appearance of it you can pay a tree service that has a stump grinding machine which essentially looks like a giant chainsaw and they'll come in and pulverize that whole stump and as much of the root system as they can get at they mostly just take it six or eight inches below ground you can't plant right in that spot typically you have to move over a couple feet but at least you could just cover it over with soil and you wouldn't be seeing it so that is more of an aesthetic decision than a than an actually hastening the breakdown uh decision and then finally you really need to get rid of it 
dig it out. You just dig around it, start cutting under it and undercut it until it comes out. When my son and I did that with about a six to eight inch stump, it only took the two of us two hours. So you just multiply that by the diameter of the stump and you know about how many hours of labor you're going to either put into it or pay for. Stumps are history is the way I look at them. Okay, let's talk about raised, uh, what is it, uh, straw bale gardening. We have a request out to our listeners. And I want to remind you, if you haven't heard this request, here it is. If you grow plants, a garden in your front yard, please send us a picture. Yeah. Tell us what you're doing. We'd love to see it. We put that request out there and Braden responded. I'm going to read you his email to us. And I think I'm going to use this picture on the archives at KDRT. So if you want to see his picture, look at the archives in, in a few days. So he writes, I listen to your show every week. It has been such a help as I learn to garden in the Sacramento Valley. Your show topics very often mirror what I am noticing and wondering about in my garden. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with the public. I wanted to share this picture of a straw bale garden that I grew in my driveway in 2020. We have a four car driveway and only one car. <laughs> my, my, my driveway also happens to get the best sun exposure on the property. On this first try, I used 12 bales of straw and grew in a tremendous amount of cucumbers, tomatoes, squash, watermelon, muskmelon, eggplant, green beans, peppers of various types, and some herbs and flowers. In later iterations, I kept it a bit smaller. Everything grew quickly and easily with plants getting a quicker start than vegetables planted in the ground, but also dying back earlier in the fall as the bales disintegrated. I used time to drip watering and had to water a few times a day for just a few minutes at a, for just a few minutes at a time during the summer. I'm looking forward to see other front yard gardens. And the great. picture is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. And he has this garden with the straw bales on it. And he has one straw bale sort of pulled a little bit forward of everyone else. And it has what looks like two eyes on it, but they're actually those reflectors. So if somebody goes to try and at night to try and drive into his, we'll his drive driveway, into see these little reflectors. No, 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 come here. So the, the only the only thing, first of all, the watering sounds just about right. And you can buy a timer that's battery operated. They sell them at the Ace stores, I know. So you can buy them online as well, which will come on multiple times a day for just a couple minutes. Total adding up all of what he's doing isn't all that different from what you'd be doing in a raised planter. He's just having to do it more often. The, 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 the units more often, I guess, is the best way to put it. And so that's going to be the key to success here in the Sacramento Valley. And if you happen to do it on your lawn or part of the landscape that you know, you know they're going to clean up, you know, fix later by just reseeding, many of those plants like the tomatoes, pumpkins, winter squash will root right into the ground below. So they will not fizzle out as early. If you're going to have to do it like this, it might be a good idea to use a determinate type of tomato that'll be done by the end of August, get your harvesting done and so forth so that you don't have to keep watering them all the way in. But this is a great example. And our goal is to get food gardens in front yards all over the Sacramento Valley, all over the country, all over the world. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.